The Track Files, Season 8, Episode 17, Jeans Back, May 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, Star Trek fans. Yes, Gene's back, and uh, so is our special guest. I don't care whether you're a, a canonista or you are a history, a Trek history nerd, or you're a tech head, whatever it is, they all come together with our special guest this week. You want to take a look at the opening columns that our guest Carrie O'Quinn used to write in every issue of Starlog magazine. If you were of of that era, they were the first thing you read as you opened the magazine. If you're not from that era, it's a great example of, you know, it's the editor's voice coming through and setting the tone for everything else to come, but influencing so many minds and bringing in so much material to come up with a fresh idea every month. Star Trek was in that circuit, of course, and if you were with us last time we had Carrie, you know about the origins of, of Starlog coming from Star Trek. But look, stop listening to me for a moment. Go and look at the Facebook page, <laughs> facebook.com slash the Trek Files. We've got three examples of Carrie's early day, well, early day, uh, 70s and 80s era columns. We've got a sample coming up in auto, as usual, but then come right back. I'll have Carrie, and we will talk more about his relationship with Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry and the whole galaxy. Take a listen. Brenda Johnson, a Starlog reader from Norfolk, Virginia, raised some exciting questions in a recent letter. Quote, many Star Trek fans have closed their minds to this new show. Why? Aren't you curious as to the technology that will be shown 150 years after Kirk? Aren't you just dying to see a more advanced and aesthetically designed starship? Aren't you hungry for info on the new crew? What might they look like? Where do they come from? Why did they join Starfleet? Who are they? End quote. Just when you thought it was safe to settle back and recite Trek trivia, that great bird reappeared and started stirring up trouble. Well, that's the way he's always been. And what could be more wholesome and natural? What indeed. And of course, Trekophiles, that letter was uh, written to Gene Roddenberry, not last week, <laughs> but in 1987, right after the debut of The Next Generation. The, again, that's one of the columns we're, we're sharing with you this week, written by our guest once again, the great uh, longtime publisher of Starlog magazine, which had so much to do with not just revolutionizing sci-fi media, but uh, even showing that it could exist. <laughs> uh, that's part of the impact of uh, Starlog, and, and it really one of the big threads we have leading to the sci-fi boom, the genre boom, the geeks rule. The geeks won the war, Carrie, because of you in large part, so thanks for joining us again. Delighted to be here. <laughs> well, I know a lot of this is a blur to you uh, over all those years, all those columns, all those issues. And how many how many magazines were titles were in the Starlog family at, at the top? Well, we started with our soap opera magazine. Yeah, we did Starlog, and we included things in Starlog like uh, Frankenstein and Godzilla. And I said, wait a minute. I mean, after a, a, a few years, I said. That's not really science fiction. That's horror. We need another magazine. So we created Fangoria. Mm-hmm. And then we decided that a lot of our audience, we got 
you know, hundreds and hundreds of letters from the fan audience. And so we got tremendous feedback that we paid attention to. I read every letter that came into our offices. And I realized that a lot of the people were interested in actual space exploration and scientific, mm -hmm. uh, you know, curiosity and, and exploration and that sort of thing. So we started a magazine called Future Life. And we also realized mm -hmm. that a tremendous part of our audience was interested in making movies someday. They were interested in special effects and production and writing. And so we started a magazine called Cinemagic. Cinemagic, yes. And uh, just one after another, our magazine family grew until at our peak, we were actually publishing two dozen monthly newsstand magazines. And some of them had nothing to do with science fiction or media and that sort right. of thing. I mean, we did a magazine called Female Wrestling, <laughs> and we did a magazine called Black Elegance, mm. which was kind of a trailblazer because uh, the, the, other than Ebony, there was no magazine that was kind of devoted to the black population. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we did a lot of things that weren't... Uh, you know, very personally interesting to me, but we did a good job with them, and they sold. And uh, but my main interest was always focused around Starlog and the magazines and the production projects that had to do with that audience. Right, that was what was near and dear to your heart. And I know uh, Starlog wound up. You you uh, did live events. You did books. You even got into the, you were resurrecting soundtracks. We were talking Bernard Herrmann's uh, North by Northwest uh, re-recording. People love those soundtracks that you brought back out of, out, of the, out of the darkness and gave to people. But here on Trek Files, I, I'm looking at one of the columns we're sharing this week where you're talking about you had a nightmare that you were Gene Roddenberry <laughs> a year or two before the motion picture dealing with studio executives. And it's everyone's worst stereotype of... of the executive that's just thinking about numbers and box office and not the heart of the movie, which is where a lot of fans were. They were excited for a movie in the 70s, but they were, as a little bit like our letter writer that we read uh, from another column you wrote, they were concerned that the spirit and the soul of Star Trek that made it some, what it was in the, in the beginning was going to translate well to the big screen and that the powers that be would let Gene and his company do what they wanted Star Trek to be. Um, which is a concern that people still have today. We're always talking about what Star Trek is. But you knew Gene personally. I love the story of how you two met for the first time. Can you can you let us know how that all got started? Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, after a few years, you know, of publishing the magazine, I was invited as a guest to quite a few uh, sure. fan conventions. And I was invited to one up in Seattle. I went to, I went to fan conventions all across the country, mm -hmm into Canada, and in fact, over in Europe occasionally. And I was at this convention up in Seattle, and Gene Roddenberry was a guest also. Well, I had grown to admire Gene tremendously because the, the values and the philosophy that was the soul of Star Trek was very much my own personal mm -hmm. values, too. And to me, they represented some of the highest things, some of the goals and, and aspirations that the human race can have for the world of tomorrow. And I very much admired that. So I went over to Gene Rodberry and I said, I'm Kerry O'Quinn. 
I publish Starlog Magazine. And Gene said, well, good to meet you. It seems like it's time for you and me to get to know each other. And I said, uh, sure, I'd love to. He said, let's have breakfast tomorrow morning. And so we did. We met at a little restaurant outdoors, a table, just the two of us out in the sunshine, and we had breakfast. And within the first five minutes, Gene and I discovered that we were both Texans. I was born in Austin. Mm -hmm. He was born in El Paso. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if you realize this, but Texans take that very seriously. <laughs> you know, and when you meet another Texan, it's like, you know, you're, 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 you have the same brotherhood or religion yeah. or something. Even when you'd spend a lot of your time in New York or in Los Angeles, as the case may be with you two. What's that? I said, even as you realize you spent most of your life maybe in New York or in Los Angeles, in the case of you two. But that Texas roots is the bond. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my first 25 years of existence on this planet were in <laughs> Austin, Texas. Then I went to New York, and I spent almost 40 years there in New York where I published and mm -hmm. produced. And then in 2001, I moved out here to Hollywood, and I've been here ever since. But Gene and I also discovered at that breakfast that we had that we both shared the same birthday. He and oh. I are both August the 19th. And when we realized that we were Texans and we had the same birthday, Gene said, clearly, we were meant to be friends. And from that <laughs> moment on, we were. We were. Because you, you crossed back and forth. I mean, we can see here, uh, you, you were producing events, but you were doing the magazine. So you all had a lot of back and forth. Uh, there were, you know, you weren't edit, hands-on editing, but you were publishing and directing a lot of the content flow. And, and uh, yeah, what, so what was... What were some of the iterations you had with Gene over the years? Or, or well, I know one very special one. It had nothing. It didn't start off with Star Trek. It started off with Star Wars. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, how did that? How did we lead into that? What were what were you and Gene back and forth over the years? Some highlights, maybe. Well, uh, after our Seattle acquaintance, uh, I you know I was living in New York, but mm -hmm. I came out here to L.A. Uh, every Every couple, three months, right. you know, frequently throughout the year, I made several trips to L.A. And my first trip back out here to L.A., I got hold of Gene and I said, I'm going to be in L.A. for a few days and I would love to say hi to you. And he invited me to come to his home. And I was absolutely thrilled. I was I was like a fan who had just been given, you know, Spock's autograph or yeah. something like that. And so I went to his home and I said, Gene, I just want you to know that I'm I'm flabbergasted. I'm thrilled that you invited me to your home. That's so personal. And I carried on about it. Gene said, Carrie, it's called friendship. And <laughs> and I just loved that because literally he it was friendship. And from then on, Gene and I were friends. And, you know, anytime I came to L.A., I usually would go to his office at Paramount and we would very often go to the commissary and have lunch or, you know, he would catch me up with what mm -hmm. was going on. And we kept very closely in touch. And when the 20th anniversary of Star Trek came right. around. 1986. That in 1986, mm -hmm. I had by that time teamed up with Creation Conventions, which was the biggest fan mm -hmm. producer 
uh, around, and I loved what they did. And we teamed up so that, I, you know, I would help produce and gather famous guests and celebrities and all that, and we would publicize the event in the magazine, and they would handle the production of the event and, and you know, rent the location and all that kind of stuff. And we had the 20th anniversary of Star Trek at the Disneyland Hotel. Mm -hmm. Gene was a guest. Leonard Nimoy was there. A lot of the special effects people. It was quite a wonderful gathering. And I invited several of my friends from Lucasfilm uh, to come down, and they did. Mm -hmm. I had about three of my Lucasfilm friends came to this, and they were astounded. They said, Kerry, there's thousands of people here. And I said, duh, guess what? <laughs> this kind of thing goes on every weekend somewhere. Fan conventions are happening all the time, celebrating Star Trek and all kinds of things. And they said, oh, we've never had a Star Wars convention or celebration. And I said, well, I don't know why not. There's millions of Star Wars fans out there. And they said, well, you know, next year is the 10th anniversary mm -hmm. of the first movie of, of Star Wars, of A New Hope. And I said, I will produce a big event to celebrate George Lucas, and it will be a huge event. We'll do a three-day weekend. The press will be there. It will be a sellout, and it will be huge. I said, of course, I want George Lucas there so we can toast him in person. And uh, Lynn Hale said, well, uh, George is not going to do that. He doesn't do fan conventions. He never has. He's, he's not really comfortable in front of a huge crowd. And I said, tell him, I'm going to be on stage with him, and it's a celebration to honor him. She got back to me two days later and said, I can't believe it. George said yes. So sure enough, he was there. Mark Hamill was there. Uh, <laughs> all, all kinds of amazing people mm -hmm. involved. And a lot of behind-the-scenes people. Oh, yes. yes, special effects people, yeah. directors like Irv Kirshner. And I secretly invited my dear friend Gene Roddenberry to come. He showed up. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think I know where this is going, but go <laughs> ahead. I, I just had a flash. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Well, when George was on stage with, uh, you know, Sid mm -hmm. Gannis and all these other amazing people— I invited, I introduced Gene Roddenberry. He came out on stage. Totally secret, totally unannounced. Unannounced, and George had no idea it was going to happen. And I introduced the two of them. Gene went over, and Gene Roddenberry and George Lucas shook hands for the one and only time that they met. And it was quite, a, the audience went crazy. Of it course. was a wonderful moment. So that iconic picture we see of the two of them shaking hands, that was at your 20th anniversary. That was 10th uh, uh, anniversary, tenth anniversary Star of Star Wars here in L.A. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny. So much that you were part of helped create, helped crystallize for Star Trek and all of sci-fi and, and the entire movement, the whole pop culture world. And that picture crystallizes the fact that you were able to do that. Um, that's... Uh, that's amazing. Um, so you you stayed in touch with Gene. You know, again, eventually the uh, you were there for twenty years. The magazine licensed in that family magazines. You had licensed Next Gen and Voyager and DS Nine magazines. Um, how you know Gene's health declined? Do you have any memories of that? And and did you deal with Majel after Gene had passed? Ever had well, yes. I mean, every year on my birthday, I always toast Gene Roddenberry. 
And after right. Gene died, which was very sad for me because it was right before I moved here to L.A., and uh, I had hoped that coming here I would be able to spend more time mm -hmm. with him because we were, we were good friends at that point. And I actually would get in touch with Majel every year on my birthday and toast Jean until she passed. And then her, uh, their son, Rod, who's become a wonderful friend of mine, invited me over to their home. And he said, Carrie, I'm clearing stuff out. And basically, I want you to take some things here. And I said, oh, Rod, I just, I just want an ashtray or something <laughs> like that, that I can say it's from the Roddenberry home. And he said, well, I've taken everything I want here. So really look around. If there's anything you want, anything you see, take it. Because otherwise, it's going to go to, you know, uh, some, some charity house. And so lo and behold, I actually ended up taking a trunk full of stuff there, including a beautiful sign I have in my living room here that is a tribute to Gene Roddenberry and his visionary uh, <laughs> uh, creativity in creating Star Trek and the Starship Enterprise and, and several other things that are, are very dear to me. And uh, I still have them. I still toast Gene every year on my birthday and his birthday, and uh, ah, my friendship with him will always be dear to my heart. Speaking of the Roddenberry legacy, you told me the very first time that you you met, I think you said the first time you met with Rod, and you were able to tell him some stories about his dad. You all had a really interesting conversation. Well, soon after I moved here to L.A., I got hold of Rod because I mm -hmm. just I, I wanted to. Before Majel passed, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, we had breakfast one morning, or, or lunch, I don't remember. It was probably brunch. <laughs> and I told him a lot of stories about his dad, uh, including our, our Get Acquainted breakfast in Seattle and all kinds of stuff like that. And I told him about uh, basically going to his office one day at Paramount. And I said, Gene, I just, this is not for the magazine. I just want to talk with you friend to friend and talk about philosophy and some serious matters here and I want to hear your ideas and I want to uh, understand you way below the surface and I recorded a one-hour conversation with Gene and I told Rod that I had this he has heard that recording at this point but I told him about that and a lot of other experiences I'd had with Gene and Rod kind of he said, Carrie, I actually think you knew my father better than I did. And I said, well, I'm not surprised at that because I was very personally active and involved in the world that he was personally active and involved in. We were both people that were involved in the world of tomorrow and how it could be better than today, how the future, what it could be and what it should be. And that was very important to both of us, as it still is to me. And I said, you know, uh, you, as a kid, you were kind of amazed by, you know, your dad was doing all these things, and he was a celebrity, and there were fan conventions all the time, and it was probably kind of bewildering to you. I understand that, but uh, uh, believe me, 
This man was a trailblazer. He was a visionary. And he was a creator like no one who had ever existed for the fans of science fiction. Well, looking at the timeline, I'm thinking that about the time you had that that brunch with Rod and, and telling him this and reminding him of how much about his dad he didn't know is right about the time I think he's germinating the ideas for his documentary, Trek Nation, which is about kind of the son's journey to find his dad. But I also know that talking about everything, Starlog and science fiction and this world that you helped, you know, connect the dots and show the, the rest of the world what was going on, the, the pop culture geek sci-fi world, you're, you're working on a documentary now or have been for a while and have some, uh, have some great people involved with it that's, that's going to examine that whole, how the geeks won, right? Well, what, uh, what do you call it? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you are mentioning the opening column that I wrote in Starlog for many, many years, mm -hmm. the publisher's column. I could write about anything I wanted to. I was the publisher. And I wrote about some of my life experiences with some famous people that I had personal relationships with, about adventures I'd had at fan conventions and in the world of science fiction. And my column was called From the Bridge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously one of the, uh, you know, because of the bridge being a famous location in Star Trek, uh, I, I kind of named my column that. And the, the documentary that has been in production for about six or seven years now is called From the Bridge. And it's about the growth of fandom and the role that my publications and my productions have had mm -hmm. in kind of bringing the fan world out of the closet, the millions of fans worldwide who are now respected as one of the most powerful and one of the most valuable audiences on the planet Earth. And several decades ago, when we started Starlog, that was not the case. That audience was not respected. And they you, you can remember... There was a time when Trek fans did not want to be called Trekkies because mm -hmm. they thought that was ridiculing them, making fun of them. Right. I don't think they're quite so <laughs> touchy about that sort of thing now because fans of science fiction and of Star Trek in particular are very much respected because Star Trek was a very serious view of what the world of tomorrow for the human race could be. And that's what Gene gave the world was that vision. And fortunately, there are millions of people who still carry that vision. And Rod is keeping that vision alive in all of the productions that he is making happen these days. Absolutely. And while it's very easy to look at the digital revolution and the coming of the Internet, it's very easy to quantify all that. I'm just going to say once again, in the 70s and the 80s, we didn't have all that, and Starlog just pioneered the hell out of out of bringing all that along. It's always easy to bring the say, look, we're we're making the bucks here, and that's one quantifier. But eventually, yeah, the geeks won, and uh, Carrie, uh, in no small no small part, much thanks to you. I enjoy it. I just want to tell everybody to watch for. From the Bridge. There's over 30 interviews in that documentary. I don't know when it will be finished. It's about 95% ready. But when it comes out, you're going to see a movie that celebrates fandom. 
and I know you're going to enjoy the hell out of it. George Takei is the host, and there's several amazing people from Star Trek in it. Yeah, I think you have Doug Jones from Before Discovery. That's right. But he's part part of that, too. Uh, I expect no less from you, Carrie. Thanks so much for coming back with us and talking today. I love this field, and I love what you're doing. <laughs> Same at you. Back at you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynimichek.com. That's where you can link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.